what's wrong with you? That's the question, right? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? What is sin? What is the fall, right? I was talking with a friend of mine who's not a Christian, used to be a Christian, used to not be a Christian before he was a Christian, and now he's not a Christian again. <laughs> but he, um, he's an interesting fellow. He, he kind of believes that there's something. But um, anyway, he reached out to me and he asked me to listen to some lectures and we were discussing the lectures and there's a gentleman, well, Jordan Peterson who he really gels with. He likes Peterson's view of Christianity. Uh, he's kind of drawn to that view. It's a little more cerebral view, less, um, how should we say, less cumbered by the more external trappings and f the fundamentalism, you could say. But anyway, so we got into a conversation um, and... He was kind of asking me about my views. And I started to describe, you know, this idea of like, what is wrong with this? We were talking about that idea, like, um, and I started to describe it like a system or a machine that's missing a component. There's a missing component. And when you try to make the machine work without that one component, it doesn't work right. It still may work. And I think that's an interesting idea. Like, what exactly is sin? What exactly is our dysfunction? What exactly did we lose in the fall? What's wrong with this? And what's the remedy? I think it's very important to understand, you know, what's what we call sin and salvation. But, like, what is sin? What is salvation? What is wrong with us? And understanding what is wrong with us, actually, has a lot to do with understanding how to fix it, right? So what is all that? Is it a missing component? Is it a broken rule? What is it? Hey guys, this is the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate all of you listening. I love doing this. I hope that you love listening. Um, I am a spiritual director, a teacher of contemplation, and a carpenter. I am an intellectual mystic. That's a new one I'm adding. <laughs> um, Anyway, I'm all those things. So that means that I believe and practice a real relationship with God. That's, a, that's what a mystic and a monk and a contemplative is. And that, but I'm also a regular guy, a husband, a father, a dude, <laughs> a carpenter. That's my carpenter side. I just I work a job, you know. I, mean, I live in the real world. Anyway, but I also am an avid reader of the Bible. I've been to Bible college for eight years. I've just studied and read. Um, I also have my master's in humanities, which means I've studied culture and specifically Western culture, which is really the history of the church from its beginnings till now. So anyway, all of that informs me. And so I, you know, I just, I'm passionate about this. Like, uh, you know, who was Jesus? What was the gospel? What does it really mean to be saved? What, what really is the problem? And that's what I want to talk about today. Today's podcast is Sin and Surrender. Sin and Surrender. So what, you know, what is sin? What does it mean to surrender to God? You know, uh, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Self-denial is, I think, 
very much a part of surrendering to God. Like Jesus says, basically, you need to put to death uh, your self-centered life, your self-focused life. And that's what the cross means. Put to death this self-willed, self-focused, egocentric life and, and follow me, right? But what does it mean to follow Jesus? I think... I think we've kind of lost a lot of the deep and rich meaning that that entails. And mysticism and contemplation says this is not a perfunctory, superficial kind of pledge that you make and and some kind of behavioral modification. There's an actual relationship. There's an actual communion that takes place, right? It's not just juice and bread and, and ritual and activity and form. There's a function, there's a reality. There's a reality of reunion with God. There's a reality that we can really know God intimately. I think sometimes we think because God is ethereal, a spirit, not really visible in the present world like like most, you know, like physical objects, then our relationship with God is actually less intimate than it could be with humans we see and even, you know, objects and animals, right? God's invisible. We can't see God. So our relationship with God is actually less intimate. But I believe it's the opposite because God is pure spirit and because God can dwell in us in our in the depths at the core. Like, you know, God can dwell in us. That's the whole gift of the Holy Spirit. I think our, our relationship with God can actually be more intimate. And I found that to be true. One of the things I love the most about being a Christian, being a contemplative, being a spiritual person is... I talk with God all the time, and I and God talks with me all the time, and I love it. Like this is, I think this is the core of Jesus' message, of the gospel message, of the Christian message, is friendship with God. You know, I've been reading a book about uh, the life of Moses by Ruth Haley Barton. Well, she actually, it's called "Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership," and she she uses Moses's life as kind of a a way to teach about godly leaders. But one of the things that it was said of Moses was that he was a friend of God. A friend of God. Like, look at Moses' relationship. I think it's so interesting that Moses' relationship with God actually was counter to the whole law that God gave through Moses. The very the very um, reality that the law came through Moses uh, <clears throat> typified the fact that Moses had a relationship outside of the law. It, through the, the law, the Mosaic law, the system that was set up, the system of rules and sacrifices and temple, it was a temple-centered, sacrifice-oriented religious system. God was where? He was on the mercy seat of the ark, which was in the Holy of Holies, which was the inner sanctum of the temple. And only one person one day a year could go before God's presence. God was super limited, super holy. You had to do all these sacrifices and keep all these rules just to be in God's, just to be kind of in God's proximity, not even in his intimate presence as typified by the Holy of Holies. Like just just to have the temple in the midst of the nation of Israel, they had to do all these things. And yet Moses was never cleansed by any kind of blood. He went right into the presence of God, so much so that his face shone Moses interacted with God intimately without any rules, rituals, without any payment for sin, 
Isn't that fascinating? I think Moses was a forerunner of the kind, he was a forerunner of a, of a Christian, of who Jesus came to reveal that we were to be of. He was a forerunner of the kind of oneness that Jesus taught, union with God, intimacy with God. Um, and he completely circumvented the whole system that came through him, right? He just had a relationship with God. He was the f- a friend of God. You know, so I think that's fascinating to me, especially when we're talking about what is sin, what, ke- what keeps us separate from God. When I look at the life of Moses, he had a deep friendship with God, and it didn't seem that God was all that um, <clears throat> bothered by Moses' state, you know. Like, I never, we never see, I mean, of course, you know, the Scripture doesn't record everything, hardly. But we don't see Moses doing anything to purify himself in order to come before God. I think there's a reason. I think that's interesting. I think that points us to some things about what sin truly is, what the fall truly represents. And note this too. This is interesting. So kind of the dominant mainstream Christian idea of sin and God's holiness and all of that, like how we come back to God, is the idea that sin separates us from God. But what if sin is separation from God? Like, there are sins and then there's sin. Have you ever thought about that? That there's a difference between sin and sins? The Bible makes that distinction, and that's where I'm going to go right now, actually. This is pretty good. Um, This is in 1 John. Give me a minute to get there. I have to to bebop over there. (laughs) Just tried out a new phrase. Don't ask me why. I've got to scroll over there, right? Um, here we go. Let's see. First John, chapter 5. I'm drinking coffee, too. I'm walking on the trails. Which I'm back on the trails. <laughs> I'm back, baby. <laughs> I'm on the trails again. Can you hear the birds? And It's beautiful. Um, <clears throat> anyway, First John, chapter 5. Let me see if I've got the whole thing. Yeah, I do. Okay, so um, I'll just start with verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life, okay. Eternal life often typified the thing that we call salvation. Jesus talked about eternal life, abundant life, salvation. I think these all, they're all are the same thing. That was verse 13, starting in verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So there's eternal life and there's God's will. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Okay, so Paul, uh, John is setting forth this, this um, model. In God we have eternal life. And as a part of that package, we have this relationship with God where he hears us. But we have to ask according to his will. So there's a will involved. We come to God and we participate in his will. We don't come to God with our will. I think that's very important. Will is involved. We have our will. There is God's will and there is our will. And those things can be different and then they can be 
in union as well. And he's saying when we are in union with God's will, and we, we speak to God from his will, and will can, you, you know, a lot of times, this it was also said in Scripture, when you ask Ask anything, Jesus said, if you ask anything in the name of the Father, and that phrase actually in the Greek meant in the character of the, in the, we think name is just, we think name so super, of, we think of the, the term name so superficially, like my name is Jason, your name is Susan, his name is John. But name tip, typified the character of a person. It was a symbolic representation of a person, but it was the person that was the essence of the thing. So name meant the essence of the person, the character of the person. So, Will and character. When we ask in union with God's will, when we ask in the out of the character of God, He not only hears us, but He gives us what we ask. And this is really cool, I think. So we need to come. There, there's the idea that because we have eternal life, because we have abundant life in God, then we are we have come into union with God. And then when we ask God what God wants, when we ask God to do what God wants, God will do it. Isn't that kind of a that's a cool way to think of prayer, right? I'm not asking God to do what I want. I'm asking God to do what He wants. And then, of course, why wouldn't He? <laughs> so that was verse 14, 15, and, or 13 through 15. Now this is verse 16. Now this is where we get into sin. So we have this paradigm where we have eternal life through God, through the Son of God, and that has to do with being in tune with the will of God and actually asking God or kind of participating with God in His will for the earth. Now it says in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, God, ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I am not saying that he should ask about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. And then, then so he says, this is very interesting. So he makes this distinction. There's sin that doesn't lead to death, and there's sin that does lead to death. So I, I started out, I said, there's a difference between sin and sins. What, what the heck am I talking about? Sin is sin, right? What's the difference between sin and sins? Well, he says, Paul, or John says, <laughs> it's easy to say Paul because he wrote most of the New Testament. John says, there is a sin that does not lead to death, and there is a sin that does lead to death. He's making a distinction here between, I think, between sins and sin as well. <sighs> he said, um, well, I think this is the distinction. There is a sin that separates us from God, and there are sins we do out of that separateness because we're not really in union with God and His will. But there's a difference. And if we don't understand the difference, we can end up trying to address the sins, but not the core thing at the center that causes them. It's like cause and effect. There is a sin that leads to sins. There is a sin which is, I think, truly separation from God. And there are sins that come out of that separation. And I think there's a difference. And I think this is what John's trying to point to. There are sins that don't lead to death. There's a sin that does. There's one thing that actually causes all, all, all our dysfunction, and then there are the results of that dysfunction. And the results really aren't the things that bring death. They're the, they're the effect. When you're separated from God, you will live a life in separation, and out of that separation, you will do certain things that just aren't in keeping with God and His will. 
And so the goal is to come back to the will of God and the auxiliary th- effects of our, that separation will also be solved as you solve the core thing. I think the problem, though, is in Christianity, we often don't understand the difference between sin and sins. I think the sin is separation and the sins are what we do out of that separation which are just the natural consequences of the separation does that make sense but if you're trying to solve the problem of your sins without solving the problem of your sin it doesn't work if you're just going around trying to live a better life and do some behavioral modification but you haven't actually solved the core problem of disunity with god it it doesn't matter right So I don't think God, and this is what John's saying, there are sins that don't lead to death. Don't worry about those. There's actually a sin that brings death and there's sins that just are a result. It's not a big deal. The sins aren't the real issue. The one sin is. And I think that sin can be defined as separation, independence, and I think the remedy can be defined as reunion or surrender. He says in verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. When we live out of union with God, when we're in God's will, when we're operating out of God's will, his desire, his heart, his intention, his purpose, his character, then what we want is what he wants and then we're operating in a way that is in keeping with God's character. And we're actually the essence and the image, the um, manifestation of God in the world. We're actually like conduits through which God can pour his heart, purpose, will, truth through. We become unified with God and his will, and we're walking in God's will instead of our own. And so I think the true remedy is surrendering to God's will and letting God's will come in and live out through us. I think... Um, I think that's what we lost in the fall. We were separated from the life of God. Now see, John continues in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 18. Now he, so I think this is also helpful because um, when he sa- what he says in these following verses, I think it's helpful because it, begin- it's, it continues to jive off of this theme of the difference between sin and sins. Verse 18, this is what he says. We know that no one who has been born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Look at at this. So he comes, he starts with eternal life. Those in the son of God have eternal life. He comes back to eternal life. What is eternal life? We are in him, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. When you're in Jesus, you are in God and you have eternal life. Now go back, that was at the end of verse 20. Go back to verse 18. He says, we know that no one who has been born of God sins. What the heck is he talking about? All have sinned and fallen short. I'll get to another passage. Maybe I'll get to it, maybe I won't, but I'll reference it. Paul says, there is no one who's righteous. 
There's none who are good. Everybody sins. Everybody's rebellious. No one's righteous. Paul goes on this long litany, and I think he's actually quoting the Old Testament. It is a quote of some kind. <clears throat> Paul's like, nobody's righteous. Everybody sins. And jo but John says, we know that no one who has been born of God sins. So that's actually incongruent with the reality of our lives, and we know it. This is a perplexing verse unless you understand the difference between sin and sins, between separation and independence and the results, the cause and the effect. We know that no one who has been born of God, I mean, no one who's come back into union with God, sins. What he's saying is no one who's in union with God lives in out of disunion with God because the core problem is separation. If you're in union with God, no one who is in union with God lives in disunion with God. Now, the reality is, it's a growing process. It's not a one-time transaction. This is not a perfunctory ritual that solves a superficial problem. Relationship is something that grows. And the same is true with God. I mean, <laughs> this is not even a hard sell, okay, people? <laughs> Like, I don't have to tell you that relationship isn't an instantaneous kind of thing. Now, I'll just tell you, I have a big heart. I love people, and I can love people very quickly. Um, and that's been my journey with God as I've learned to open my heart and be an open-hearted person. I love people very quickly. I, I love them deeply, I would say, and, and genuinely. So I can meet someone, and I can want to be deep friends quickly, but that's not true. But even, even though I have that maybe initial heart, it still takes time to get to know people. And as I get to know people, and as you get to know people, sometimes the people that we thought were very interesting, we just had a large desire to know them. After a while, there are things we learn about them that we think, well, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> like, we have to get used to people and we have to grow in relationship because... We can't truly know a person in a day or a week or a year or even 10 years, right? Like people are always changing. We're always learning more about them. It's so cool. It's cool to learn new things about people, even my wife. I mean, it's probably not a week goes by where we've been married 16 years. Actually, this is our 17th anniversary this month. I better not forget that, huh? Right, guys? <laughs> um... But like, it's so cool, but it's also funny because when I learn new things about my wife, I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's cool. But I'm also like, huh, I can't believe I'm still learning new things about my wife after 17 years. But that's the way relationship works. And God, who is infinite personality, even more so, right? Gosh, it's so crazy, isn't it? Like just, I, I get so jazzed about knowing God and growing to know God. I, I mean, it is exciting. It is Ah, it's the it's the heart of what makes life for me li worth living, and I think it is truly what makes life for all of us worth living. Coming into reunion with God and growing in union with God is so exciting, because not only do I discover more of who God is, I discover more of who I am. Because that's how we were created. We were created to live in union with God. When we are separated from God, we don't know ourselves. We actually become someone we're not meant to be we actually don't know ourselves that's part of the part of the fall and the separation is we cannot know ourselves even without god 
walking with us, revealing himself and herself to us and ourselves to, our, to us and to us to each other. Like there is this beautiful communion that, that comes between God and us, which creates union with all other things and people as well. There's a growing union with God that creates a growing union between us and everything else. It, it, and it also puts everything in its proper connection and proper union. That's beautiful. I love that. But that's the core issue. It's not sins, it's sin. It's separation is the core issue. And union is the core solution. And that's, what, that's the only reason John can say we know that no one who has been born of God sins. It's like almost redundant to say no one who is in union with God is ununified with God. But the, the, the thing I was getting to was that we're growing into union with God. And so the auxiliary sins that happen out of disunion will continue. But the idea is that we've come back into union and we're growing in union. And the real core issue of disunion has begun to be solved. Like we are back in a fuller union. And I think that's truly what baptism represents. Not that we were ever separated from God but that we experienced a kind of separation that was more on our side. And coming back to God, getting baptized, getting, quote, saved, getting eternal life <clears throat> is really getting the life of God who is eternal back into us. And uh, it's actually a fuller opening and experience of God in us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think, is a fuller opening to God so that God can come more fully into us. And that's the point at which we kind of, our journey towards God has been previously kind of stumbling in the dark. And then we reach this epiphany point, salvation, baptism of the Holy Spirit, where, where we open more fully to God and God comes more fully into us. And then actually at that point, we really get going because now we're actually learning to participate with God in his life and his life in us. And we're beginning to open to God more fully. But God's still there. Like, I think that's the cool thing about the Genesis story. Um, notice, see again, evangelical modern Christianity paints this idea that God is separated from us because of our sin. What happened when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, in, in the story, right? They became aware. What did they, they sought... They sought to they sought independence from God. That's the true thing that Satan offered. He didn't offer knowledge, <clears throat> truly. And he truly wasn't offering anything good either, you know. He was offering Adam and Eve a way to live life separate from God. God said they died. Satan said they wouldn't die. They didn't die, but they did die because separation from God is a living death. And, of course, our physical bodies do die, but our true selves don't. But what happened after the fall? God shows up again, right? God didn't leave. God, God didn't, like, send a message from on far and say, I can't come near you because you're so sinful. God shows up again. Adam and Eve recognize there's something wrong. Of course, God does too. But not something wrong with God, wrong with them. They felt ashamed. They actually hid they felt ashamed. But God comes and he addresses them, right? He's like, what happened? They tell him what happened. And then what happens after that? 
He brings them, he walks them out of the garden, and he clothes them. Look, the important thing there is God is still with them. He clothes them. He brings them out of the garden. It says he curses the ground. I think that's, that's a whole other discussion. But, you know, God, God, I, God doesn't pronounce superficial and arbitrary punishments on Adam and Eve. What he really says is, because of your separation from me, this is the result. You're going to struggle in this way. It's not that God picked some arbitrary punishments like we do as parents sometimes with our little kids. God's saying there are natural consequences to life and separation from me. These are what they are. He brought them out of the garden actually as a grace. So God walks them out of the garden. Why? Because the, the tree of eternal life was there. And if you don't know, the tree of eternal life is in John's vision of heaven in Revelation. So, so it wasn't God's intent to prevent them from having eternal life, but he didn't want them to have eternal life in their fallen, broken state. God first wants to restore us, if you notice, after we're fully restored, then, we, then heaven comes down and the tree of eternal life is there to eat from. Because first, God brought them out of the garden to protect them from being trapped in an eternal dying a state of eternal dying. And then what does he do? He clothes them. So God walks with them even after the fall. God is not separate and does not separate. But what was the key thing that happened in the garden? One, they rejected union with God. Really, they decided they could do it without God. And two, they something changed inside them. Their perception of themselves and the world changed. They saw that they were naked, they felt shame. The perception of how they saw themselves and the world changed. Something happened inside them. Something <clears throat> was lost. That something was the presence, the more full presence of God, which is the component that is missing. Remember I, ta I started out with that talking about that conversation with my friend about what is truly wrong with us and I talked about it like a missing component I think this is such an interesting way to think about it because it's different than a broken rule like a lot of times the dominant Christian metaphor or story is that God has his rules we broke the rules and now we have to try to like we have to repent and then we got to try to keep the rules better right that's a different idea than there's a system like that we are meant to work a certain way and when you take a part of the system of how we're meant to work out it doesn't work right I think the issue is of course that that part is God like, we are meant to live in concert with God, in union with God. God's Spirit more fully in us. I don't think that God's Spirit ever leaves us because e even contemplation teaches that all life is actually breathed alive in every moment by God's living presence in us. God sustains all life by His very being. I think Scripture is clear, clearly supports that. But like, so God's not separate, but there's a kind of separation that we experience there's a missing component to the way we're meant to live. And that missing component makes the whole system work incorrectly. But here's the thing. You and I were born incomplete. But when, you, when you're looking at a complex system, 
You can think of it as a machine or a social system. Or When something's missing, you don't know what's missing. You don't even know that something is missing because you're used to things the way they are. You can't know something's missing until you encounter the missing thing, right? And that's kind of when we come in contact with God and we feel repentance, we feel the negativity, we feel remorse, or we feel even condemnation. We feel the awfulness of the missing part because we come in contact with the part that's missing. Like, it's easy, it's easy to live our lives without that missing component and not be aware of it. But we're kind of aware that we're not doing things the way we're meant to do, obviously, that there's brokenness in us and in the world. Like, there's no doubt I think most people would say, yes, the world is not right. I mean, that's look at the world. War, genocide, poverty, um, disease, human trafficking. Like, the world's not right. And, and we know we're not right. You know, we know the world's broken. But sometimes we don't even know that it's because something's missing, you know, often we do think, well, I'm doing something wrong. I'm not doing something right. But we don't understand. I'm not, it's not that we're doing something wrong or right. It's that we're operating in a wrong way because we're missing something. That's why we need <clears throat> the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Like the whole thing, the whole process, the whole thing that's wrong and the whole thing that needs to be fixed is a missing component. Not improper truth. Not the correct rules, the correct understanding, not even the correct behavior, but a proper relationship with the one thing that gives us life and guides us in life, and that is God. And so that's what John is really trying to point to. And uh, there's another passage that where Jesus kind of points to the same thing. I'm, I'm looking at that Romans passage, actually. Oh, you know, I'm going the wrong way. Hold on. See, did I get this? I thought I looked this up. Uh, here we go. Yes, yes, here we go. Sorry. Luke chapter 12. For a minute there, I was like, <laughs> I couldn't find it. Um, this is Jesus talking. And he's talking. This, he, he's, this is in the larger context. The Pharisees are questioning who he is. And so out of that, Jesus is is talk he's telling some stories he's trying to kind of explain the kingdom but he's also like the Pharisees actually call him a son of the devil or a demon possessed and they say he's doing his works not out of the spirit of God but the spirit of the devil so they're actually calling I mean catch this they're actually calling God Satan and so this is kind of in response to that idea they're questioning who he is and he's kind of this is his response Luke 12, starting with verse 8. Now I say to you, everyone who confesses me before people, the Son of Man will also confess him before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before people will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will, will, be, it will be forgiven him. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. This is what Christianity is typically called the unforgivable sin. Did you catch that? There is one sin which is unforgivable. There are sins, and Jesus says, like, there's a lot of things you can do, even if you speak against me. Like, there's ways, and, and just don't think of this so literal, like saying things, but he's saying, if you do things and live in a way that is against the way that I am, I am the representation of God and how God intends you to live. If you live in opposition to the way I live, that's forgivable. <clears throat> 
But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that's not forgivable. I'm just telling you, this is really crazy. So because we're, we have unfortunately taken things so literally, we really think it means to like say something or to reject the Holy Spirit like through what we say. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is simply to, to not live in union with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of a, tr- a trinity, which is a relational flow. And so to break relationship with that relational flow is to reject the Holy Spirit and the very function of the Holy Spirit, which is given to us to reconnect us to God. So living, I and mean, Jesus is just saying, again, just like John, this is like redundant. If you live in disunion with God, you're rejecting union with God. That's all he's saying. It's not some magic. I mean, throughout the history of the church, it's been like this magic thing where, oh my gosh, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't say certain things and don't kind of have a certain attitude. I, I, I'm not, it's been more superficial. But all Jesus is saying is when you live in disunion with God, that's, that's breaking union and you can't get to union through disunion. Separation, it's about separation and union. When you live in separation from God, you're rejecting Union with God. That's all he's saying. Like, there's a lot of things you can do out of that that you don't even know you're doing. You're missing the component. It's a missing component that is the true problem. Separation. It's not sins. It's sin. And Jesus here points to the same thing that First John points to. There's one sin that is the true core of our dysfunction. And that is separation from God. It is solved by surrender to God. Again, Jesus says, I say to you, if you confess me before people, I'll confess you before the angels. If you deny me, I'll deny you. It, you know, he's confession. We just, we, again, we think, oh, I confess. I made that good confession. I said the, the sinner's prayer. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, if you live in the character of who I am, I'll recognize you. As one, of, as, as one of mine. <clears throat> if you don't live in my character, then you won't be recognized as, as belonging to me, as, as living in my character. It's just a really simple thing. When we, are, when we get reunified with God and God, that, that missing component comes in. It solves the issue. We begin to live, live in union with God. And out of that union, we begin to act like God. We begin to have that part restored and the relationship restored. And then it also begins to restore the auxiliary things, our actions, our thoughts, our heart, our behaviors, our emotions. Those are the superficial results of what of an internal issue. Union and disunion produce different kinds of living, different kinds of life, different kinds of people. Eternal life is when we get the eternal character of God poured back into us, reconnected, flowing through us, and then we have eternal life out of that, out of the reintroduction of that missing component. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting that component. It's missing if you continue to, to, for whatever reason, not get it back, then you're rejecting Union with God. That's all it means. And that makes sense. But here's the other thing. You can't help what you do out of that disunion. 
Like, are you really not culpable? And I know that that sounds a little maybe sacrilegious, but you can't help that you're broken and you can't help that you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing because you don't know what it's like. And, and like, that's just the process of even coming back to God is beginning to recognize, hey, something's missing. I'm not, I don't work right. Oh, there's a missing component. This whole system, I thought it worked this way. I thought this was just, I thought this was the whole system, but now I realize there's something missing. And it's the actual, the, the one thing that makes everything else work right. God's spirit in us. A union with God. As, as it says, even in Genesis, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. There was a relationship. There was a union. We lost it. We don't even know what it's like now. But when we come back, it's like that God-shaped hole. But when we come back and we kind of begin to touch upon it, or God begins to touch us, and then we're like, oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I feel the th- when I when I actually come in contact with the thing I'm missing, then it, because it, it, it is the thing that I'm meant to have. I, there's something deep in me that says, yes, this is the thing that I was missing. And it's the thing that I need. <clears throat> but we can't even recognize it until <coughs> we come back in contact with it. So, the truth is, it's not about sins. It's about sin. It's not about the auxiliary effects of disunion with God. It's about getting back in union with God. But... Here's, here's the thing, and here's my concern, is that when I look at the church, I see the church concerned about sins, but not the sin. I see the church running around, <clears throat> both inside itself and to those outside of it, saying, look at that sin, look at that sin, look at that sin, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You know, and we even make this distinction, sinners and saints. Saints are in the church, sinners are outside the church. Well, but also we know, like, we're still sinners, Paul called himself the chief of sinners at the end of his life, not the beginning. <laughs> you know, at the beginning of his, of his life before he became a Christian, he thought he was pretty darn good. He thought he was super righteous, right? He was so righteous that he took it upon himself to go around and kill all the unrighteous Christians. Paul started out very thinking he was very righteous. The more he got to know God, the more he understood he wasn't. The church, I see the church running around focused on sins. The auxiliary effects of disunion with God, but I don't see them really doing that much about the core issue of disunion with God. Like, what are we really doing as a church, right? We're getting people baptized into this transactional idea of salvation, the sinner's prayer, dunked in some water, going to church, doing the core things we think that all that entails, 10% tithe, some missions trips, some ministry, some, some <clears throat> you know, ministry outreach, reading our Bibles. Like, we're doing all these things, but are we solving the core problem? Are we really coming back into union with God? That's why I'm a contemplative. That's why after all these years of searching to truly know God, because in reading the Bible hundreds of times, that's the, the, the truth that I got from the Bible was that I needed to be in relationship with God. So after all these years, you know, searching and seeking and pursuing that one path above all else, Finally realizing that's what contemplation teaches, and realizing I'm a contemplative, that's what I was journeying to my whole life. But that's what contemplation teaches. Contemplation teaches the core thing we're meant to be about is coming back into union with God in a real way. Not through auxiliary and perfunctory rules and the keeping of rules and good ideas and good 
practices, the practices, the ideas, the truths, the scripture, the rituals, the buildings, the fellowship, the singing, the worship, everything is meant to point us back to this one thing because this is the thing. This is the one thing that's wrong and this is the one thing that solves what's wrong. All those other things are auxiliary. They're not bad, but they're meant to point us to this one thing. They're meant to produce a growing reconnection with God, relationship with God, where we actually live in union with God in a way that allows a true relationship. A real friendship like Moses. Where we really begin to have a true experiential reconnection that brings the missing component back in. I don't see the church as a whole really pointing people down this path of reunification with God, of true communion. We even take communion, we practice communion itself as a perfunctory and superficial and auxiliary ritual. It was meant to point us to the reality. Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have nothing to do with me. And then he said, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. It's representative. Communion is representative of the reality that we need to be partaking of God in a real way. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus is saying, what really fills me and fills me up and energizes me in a real way is when I am in union with God in a way that His will comes through me because I'm surrendered to His will. We need a true, growing reunification with God in a way that allows us to be in contact with God's heart, <clears throat> God's mind. First Corinthians, I can't remember the chapter, but it says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that we should teach him, but we have the mind of Christ? Like regeneration, sanctification, even salvation, all these things point to the reality that we need to be growing in union with God in a way that we really participate in God's nature, in God's character, in God's will, in God's heart, in God's mind, in a real way, where God's thoughts and emotions and movements in us really register in a real way that moves us when we are moving in concert with God. Where we are conduits through which God can express Him and Herself through us and into the world. (laughs) What that means is that I hear God. I have a relationship with God where God can truly show me things. Where I'm open to listening, not just talking to God, throwing words and prayers at God, but God actually prays through me. God's will, God's character, God's heart, God's mind are actually present in me in a way that it registers and I can understand. And let me tell you, that is a long process. That takes a lot of time. It's not easy. It's not clear. But it's most especially hard when nobody around us is doing it and nobody around us is teaching it. Jesus' main model for passing on the life he came to teach us how to live was discipleship, mentoring, person to person, deep through deep relationships. Like, you need to be in relationship with someone who truly knows God to know God. You don't need good ideas. You don't need good books. All those things can help, and that's been part of my journey. But the real way Jesus taught this whole thing and put out this, put forth this whole thing, this the whole paradigm that Jesus uh, 
But fourth was, you need to be in a relationship with people who know God so you can come to know God by observing how they know God and talking with them and asking questions. There's this lively interplay between deeply spiritual, mature elders in the church and youngers who need to sit at their feet in a way and walk with them and say, how do you really know God? We can't find it in Scripture. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that by them you will have eternal life. But the Scriptures point to me, and I'm right here, but you won't follow me. You're following Scripture instead of me. It's a relationship. It's relational because it's about relationship, because the core problem is relationship, a broken relationship. And so the core solution is the restoration of a relationship. (laughs) But I don't see that as the core thing in Christianity today. And I say that in a very generalized sense because there are elements of Christianity that do still practice that. Eastern Orthodox, as I've already said, contemplation, which is more Catholic. And uh, the Quakers also. This is the central identity of the Quakers, of these, these particular Christian groups. But mainstream Western Christianity, whether Catholicism or Protestantism, This isn't the main thing. What's the phrase? You got to keep the main thing, the main thing. (laughs) What is the main thing? Relationship with God. How is that possible? How do we have a relationship with God? We can't see God. (sighs) You got to walk with people who have a relationship with God who can pass it on. I hope that's why you're listening to me. I hope that in some way I can at least encourage you, but like, you do need to find real present spiritual elders. You know, you can find it through books. And look, the Holy Spirit is with you too. That's really the biggest thing that helped me. But I was seeking a lively relationship with God. I was asking God questions. I was seeking to really know God personally. And because that's what I was seeking, I found it. Jesus uh, says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. If we're seeking God to know God, <clears throat> it'll happen. If we're seeking just to find some good truths and good rituals and good practices and a good faith community, well, all those things are good. Those things aren't the same thing as the one thing that really matters. <laughs> that's knowing God. Because that's the core issue. That's the, that's the sin. The sin is independence is disunion with God is a broken relationship it's not sins it's sin it's not rules and truths it's separation from God it's an unsurrendered life it's a self-willed life that's why Jesus core call to his disciples is to take up their cross put to death the self-willed life and enter into a self-denial that actually brings us back to life No one who seeks to save their life, oh, everyone who seeks to save their life will lose it, and those who seek to lose their life will find it, right? That's what he's talking about. He's saying, when you're trying to to walk a self-willed way, when you're trying to pilot your own life and guide your own life, they are actually participating in the very thing that Adam and Eve were tempted to, to do and did. They decided to walk alone. They decided to walk independent of God. They broke relationship. They lost the union and the unity and the friendship that they had. (sighs) (sighs) I get jazzed about this because it's my passion because 
God is, is like relationship with God is so different than a relationship with people in a faith community and a, and a text and traditions and a pastor and a, a church. Those all things, those, those things can be good. And by themselves, they are a community. And like there are, there are, um, purely human benefits. It's good to be a part of a community to have common goals and beliefs and practices but the thing that really binds us together is God, God's spirit in us, relationship with God, because that's the true thing we're missing. There's nothing more grounding, more healing, more soothing, more comforting than God's presence. And look, God's presence does work like when we come back into relationship with God, he begins to point to the individual sins, the individual kind of auxiliary results of disunion because that there is a process to coming back into union. And God, like the core issue is self-willed, a self-willed life. And so God, as God comes back in, he begins to say, well, okay, well, here is an area where you're still operating in your own will and surrender to me. We work on that. We work on surrendering that to God. Then God begins to say, okay, here's a... And that's pretty cool because where the church has us running around, kind of trying to address all these, a whole litany and list of issues and problems, you know, just at our own behest. Oh, you need to work on this and you need to work on this. And, and then we can be running around like crazy people trying to, trying to solve a million different sins in our lives on our own, through our own efforts, which is just crazy which actually becomes cumbersome and burdensome, which is what Jesus said the Pharisees and Jewish leaders of his day did with God's truth. But then when we have a lively relationship with God, you know what he really typically tends to do is say, here's one thing to work on. And he does it with us. He, he, he actually reveals the thing. He invites us into the process, but he says, I'm leading and I'm energizing the process and I'm the one that's going to actually do the work. But you have to learn to surrender to me. In this area that's a much simpler process it's not led by us it's not led by other people it's led by God and God knows what we're ready to work on when when it's the right time that's why Jesus you know and God are called Jesus is called the great counselor he counsels us towards healing but it's very different than a church just saying here's the list of sins you got to get them all right start get to work get busy Throw a dart at the list, pick one, pick two, pick ten, pick twenty. You gotta work on these sins that those aren't the problem. Those are the auxiliary results. And when you solve the core problem, those get solved as well. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, clean the inside of the cup and the outside becomes clean automatically. You don't need to clean the outside of the cup. That's foolish. When the inside's unclean, what he's saying is the core problem is a disconnection from the Spirit of God in you. And when you solve that, everything else gets solved out of that naturally. And it's not instantaneous. Just like relationship isn't instantaneous. We walk with God. God points out more things that need resolved, healed, that, that, that are really pointing to us living a self-willed life and that need to be surrendered to God. And as we surrender more, God's Spirit has more room in us. Which practically, practically just means God has more leverage to lead us because we're no longer trying to lead ourselves. <laughs> and so God can lead us. And it's just this growing process. And it's so beautiful that we get to this place where we're like, like Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. 
that's such a calming and peaceful place. I'm not walking around going, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not walking through my life going, I don't like this and I want that and I'm trying to get there and that person's in my way and I'm frustrated. I was going to go to James, but James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's your internal desires, right? You have a will and you're trying to enact that will on the world and so is everybody else and all these wills are coming in contact with each other and they're in conflict mostly. You know, sometimes we align with other people's wills. Sometimes we don't. But the core issue is our will, our self-willed life. Like when we're all willed by the one will, then we're all in unison and we're all in union. And union is the result when we get into a deep, growing relationship with the one will of God, who is the preeminent will, who is the good will, who is the loving, kind will, who wills for us what is good for us and everyone, including God. The one will is was meant to guide us and into unity with all things. When that happens, we're not all these individual wills running around, bumping up against each other in conflict and fighting and wrangling. <clears throat> I want, I want, I want. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like you. I don't like her. I don't like him. I don't like this. I don't like that. God says, stop. My will, not yours. My will is supremely good and perfect, loving, kind, generous, compassionate, peaceful, patient, calm, be at peace, come back into the peaceful rest of no longer needing to push your will through the world. We surrender our will and we come into union with the will of God and that is the core problem. That is the core dysfunction, a missing component. That is the sin, not the sins. And so I would really say to you, forget about the sins. Don't worry about your sins. Worry about the sin. That's the thing that matters. That's the thing that fixes everything, including the sins. It's the sin, disunion with God. And look, that's just, it is what it is. A relationship with God is a relationship with God. It's not a relationship with a book and thoughts and ideas and theologies and a faith community and a pastor. All those things can help, but they can also become idols. They can also come between us and make, make us think we have a relationship with God, and that's our relationship with people, not God. Friendship with God is what it is. It means you know God. It means you hear God. I know, that can sound crazy. Like, how is that even possible? <laughs> that's hard to explain because it's meant to be lived. It's a life. It's a way of living, just like all relationships. It has to be learned through relationship. But that is the thing. Don't get caught up in the auxiliaries. It's not about your sins. It's about sin. The sin. Don't run around trying to fix all your sins. You're trying to clean the outside of the cup. Don't do that. It won't work. Jesus said it doesn't work. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Get connected to the vine. There's a flow of, there's a flow of energy, a flow of relationship, a flow of connection that happens when we're grafted into the vine. You can't produce things not connected to the main trunk. Disconnection is the problem. You're trying to fix the auxiliary issues of disconnection, but you're not getting reconnected. It doesn't work. It's laborious. It's cumbersome. It's tiring. It's exhausting. That's why people are giving up on the church. I'll just be straight. Because they're tired of trying to do the good things when the core problem isn't being solved. and won't be until we get back into connection with God. It's not about the sins. It's about the sin. 
of disconnection. That's the core problem. <laughs> hey, man, I love you guys. I, I really am passionate about knowing God and you knowing God. That's why I do this. And it really is the thing that solves all the things. It's the thing. Hey guys, this has been the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. Love you guys. Hey, you can catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com or Google Jay Randall Ori and you'll find all my stuff on the web, including a new YouTube channel that I'm doing. So love you guys. Take care. Bye.